I'd like uh, for you to go ahead and, and open with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all the hearts assembled here be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Lauren, I'd like to thank you for that children's message. We can pretty much just go home right now. So we're, we're, we're good. <laughs> no. Um, since the fall of mankind, there's been division uh, in the world. We've, we are a divided people, right? Simply put, division occurs when one person or a group of people believe their ideas or beliefs are correct over another. Today we find division in politics, education, culture, religion, in fact, uh, this division reveals itself in the old adage that when you meet someone new or you are in polite company, you never bring up two things, which are politics, religion, money, whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not, right? A whole <laughs> slew of things. And while that idea was rattling around in the, the, the back of my head, I came across a uh, study completed by the Pew Research just two years ago, so it's, it's relatively fresh, and this study revealed that there's one thing that uh, many Americans may not be divided on as we thought, which is this. The study revealed that roughly 75% of Americans believe in heaven. It's a pretty strong number. This includes 26 of people who claim to be agnostic, which means that they believe nothing is known or can be known about God. 26% of them believe in heaven. Even 3% of those claiming to be atheists believe that there is a heaven. Go figure. Not surprisingly, the belief in hell is not as popular. It's a little more divisive. All Americans across uh, faithful and faithless, about 60% of them agree that there is a hell. And the reason I share this is because in discussing things like maybe heaven uh, with your neighbor may not be as taboo as once thought. It's as, it's as if God placed something, something in our hearts to say, this isn't it. There's something more to be had this is what led thousands, what has led thousands of churchgoers every year to ask their pastor to do a study on Revelations or to, to do a sermon series on Revelation, the book that talks about the end times. We see this curiosity play out when the disciples ask Jesus what the end will be like in the beginning of chapter 24. And Jesus spends the entire chapter explaining to them what the end will be like. It actually spills over into the next chapter, chapter 25, and that's where our reading is today. Jesus continues answering this question with a couple of parables. And so if you have your Bibles or, or maybe phones, I, I'd like you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 25, uh, beginning with verse 1, where Jesus uses this image of a groom coming to uh, pick up his bride at the wedding banquet or a marriage feast. It's a, it's a beautiful and perfect metaphor. The Bible uses a, a marriage uh, metaphor many times because it fits so well. But to give this parable maybe a little bit of more depth and application for our lives, we, sh we should recall really what a wedding entailed. In the Bible or in, in Jewish culture, a wedding or a marriage consisted really of three stages. First was the engagement. 
Now, there was no finding the, the perfect venue, right, or preparing for that perfect moment to get down on one knee. No, this engagement had really little to nothing to do with the, uh, with the couple. It was really more of a, a contract between families. But unlike other cultures where the, the bride's family paid uh, the dowry to the groom, it was the groom's father that paid the bride price for the bride in recognition of the loss of a family member, a working member of the household. Now, once the engagement was finalized, a betrothal took place. This ceremony is where promises or, or vows were made between the couple, surrounded by family and friends, and it was here that the couple would actually be considered married. Now, the only way this marriage could have been broken was by a formal divorce. Yet the couple did not live together, and the marriage certainly would not have been consummated yet. No, after that ceremony, the bride would go back to her family's home, and the groom would go back to his, where he would prepare a place for her. Does that language kind of make you think of something in in scripture here? Jesus talks about that, going to prepare a place for us. The the groom was going to prepare a place for them, either establish a business or a betrayed. Now, this betrothal would last for many months, even a year or more. If the husband were to die at this point, the the woman would be considered a widow. Now, just for perspective, it was at this point that an angel came to Mary and said that that she would be with child, and his name would be called Jesus. Finally, once uh, the the groom was ready, the last stage of the wedding took place. It was the marriage feast. The bride's new home had been prepared, and the the bridegroom, along with his groomsmen, would come at an unexpected time for his bride at her home, where her bridesmaids, or the virgins, were also waiting. The entire community would be involved. Together, the bride and the groom and their attendants would would then parade through the streets, proclaiming that the wedding feast was about to begin as they processed back to the groom's home. And this is where our lesson picks up today, where the bridesmaids, who were typically uh, young, unmarried women or virgins, we're waiting for the bridegroom. And we begin in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, or torches, and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps." In the beginning of this parable, Jesus compares himself to a bridegroom, or groom as we would say today, coming for his bride. And while the bridegroom's exact arrival isn't set, a time frame has been given. Therefore, the the virgins or the bridesmaids are waiting outside the bride's home. Now, some have, have likened these women to all the people on earth waiting for the groom. But you and I both know there are lots of men and women on this earth today that are not waiting for the, for the bride, for Christ, to, or for the groom, for Christ to come back. Instead, these virgins represent the church here on earth. Outwardly, these, these women, they looked ready. 
They were dressed. They all had their lamps so that they might be seen as part of the wedding. But some, actually half, were unprepared. We continue in verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and tripped their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. In, in waiting for the groom, both the wise and the unwise virgins slept. But when the time came to prepare to trim their wicks of any loose ends and dip that torch in oil, half found that they didn't have what they needed. The key ingredient, the oil, which allowed their lamps to burn brightly and be identified as Christ, is their faith. As Christians, the oil that identifies us as true participants in the wedding is a faith that is given to us in, by the Holy Spirit, yes, but is continually sustained and nourished by communion with God, by, by being in his word, by, give, by, being, by communing with the gifts that he has given to us, by being in his word and receiving holy communion. As the foolish virgins found out, this oil can't be shared. It's, it's non-transferable. Just as we can't transfer earthly life from one person to another, so we can't transfer spiritual life. We can't transfer faith as much as we'd like to. Because these women weren't vigilant in their preparations before the groom's arrival, they were left scurrying in the last minutes. And we pick it up in verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore you know neither the day nor the hour. I would imagine that there aren't too many oil shops open at midnight. The arrival of the groom was unexpected, and upon their return and searching for oil, the door was shut. The bridesmaids had no oil to illuminate who they were, so they would be known. It's so obvious, and yet sometimes it's missed. The burning oil is, allow, is what allowed the groom to know who was in the wedding. No oil, no recognition. To understand the seriousness of this message again, we need to recall the bridesmaids represent the church here on earth. They're not individuals who claim to be agnostic or atheist. They aren't actively working against the groom. They are aware that the groom, Christ, is coming. They were committed to him ceremonially, right? They were dressed correctly. They, they had the lamps. They were committed to him intellectually, but they did not have a living and active faith that they might be recognized. The words of the groom echo Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, which I heard someone say earlier this week could be one of the scariest verses in Scripture. Matthew 7, 21 says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Translated today, Maybe it sounds something like this in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church? Didn't we put some money on the offering plate? Didn't we have our kids go through confirmation or baptismal affirmation or whatever they called it when I went to church there? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, all those things that I just mentioned are good things. Church, offering, confirmation are good. But if these acts are not born out of faith, then we are no different than the bridesmaid without oil. And here's why. In faith, it's faith in Christ that makes us right in the eyes of God. It's Jesus' work on the cross received by faith that we are known to be participants in the wedding banquet. Not our church attendance, not money, or if you've been confirmed, because these are still works, and none of them cleanses you from your sin like the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So maybe you say, okay, Chad, I, I got faith. Now what? And this is where our Old Testament lesson really illuminates. See what I did there? It really illuminates what God asks of us as we wait for the bridegroom. Uh, In Amos chapter 5, we're going to read there just a second. Amos was a farmer who is called by God to speak to Israel amidst really just great prosperity. But that wealth led to really religious and, and moral corruption. See, these worshipers of God, as I air quote that, indulged in luxurious living while justice was perverted and, and really the poor were marginalized and were oppressed. Yet Israel felt like they were in good standing with God because they simply followed the religious rituals. They saw their wealth as God's approval, but Amos essentially tells them that they are like bridesmaids without a torch. God does not mince words here in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And maybe we're thinking, well, wasn't it God that that ordered the feasts? So why did he hate them? Why did he not accept them? Because they were, begins with a P, what is that, Joyce Lynn? They were perfunctory. They were perfunctory. They were mechanical. They were automatic. In other words, They didn't go to church to to know God better and to live out his grace amongst the people. They thought that a body sitting in a pew earned them a spot at the wedding feast. But Amos did tell them in the final verses what God wanted, what would happen to them, and what God wanted from his chosen people. Their call is our call. Instead of empty motions, this is what God wants in verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters. 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God wanted their faith and our faith to be lived out among the people in the forms of justice and righteousness. You want the groom to know you? You spend time in his word. You receive the gifts that he gives to you again freely by a holy communion through baptism so that your oil may be nourished and may be plentiful. Then your torch will be lit so that not only you will be known by Christ, but that others outside of these four walls may know Christ as well. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to live out our faith which the Holy Spirit gives to us so that justice may roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We tangibly worship God when we serve others from what Christ has given us. Not out of obligation or to, to earn a spot at the wedding feast because we are free to do so. So what will that look like for you this week? How will others see your oil-filled torch burning brightly for Christ? Will it be through your hospitality of a warm meal, extended patience, and maybe a word of affirmation with the person in front of you with a checkout line who's a little flustered? Maybe it's making yourself available for a struggling friend with a, a listening ear that is slow to speak your words, but quick to respond with words of grace and hope found in Christ. Maybe it's tech, taking a step closer towards those who have less and discover how you might be able to assist the services that are already in place for them, like maybe Assistance Resource Center, ARC, or Options for Women, or Our Neighbor's Place. And without compromising Christ, we live and seek to bridge the divisiveness that we spoke about earlier. We move towards these individuals. I read earlier this week, a hallmark of Christians isn't just that we love Christ, but how do we also love Judas? We move towards these individuals because in all of this, we can't forget it's Christ the groom who moved towards, who came towards us. The groom who paid the bride price with his own life, death, and resurrection for our sins. The groom who, as it states in Zephaniah 3.17, man, I love these words. The groom who rejoices over us with gladness, who quiets us with his love, and will exult over us with loud singing. May our torches be ever burning brightly for that day when he comes again towards us. And yet the last verse of this parable reminds us that we are to watch, therefore you know neither the day nor the hour. Now this does not mean that we live life continually looking up, waiting for the, the Lord to come. It means, though, that we go about our life expectantly, Doing what we need to do, being fed by the Lord's word and sacraments. Doing what he has called us to do and being prepared to not lose hope. I I don't know about you, but so much of the spiritual weakness that I have encountered, so much of the defeat, so much of the lethargy in my spiritual life can explain when I am not regularly being filled by the Holy Spirit, by making time for him and his word in my life. We may find ourselves without oil for our lamp or torch. So we prepare and we wait. 
In the spirit of uh, Veterans Day weekend, I would like to close with this story. I found it um, rather appropriate, and doggone it, pardon me if I can't get through it, because it's a good one. (laughs) Officer Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq war. Uh, After the 300th mission, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts and then had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night. And when his buddies dropped him off, oh golly, (laughs) when his buddies dropped him off in his driveway just after sunup, there was a big banner across the garage that said, Welcome home, Daddy. Golly. (laughs) How did they know? No one had called. The crew themselves hadn't expected to, live, to leave so quickly, Robbins relates. When I walked into the house, the kids, about half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy, Susan came running to down the hall. She looked terrific, her hair fixed, makeup on, and a crisp yellow dress. How did you know, I asked. I didn't, his wife responded through tears of joy. Once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home. <laughs> We knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us, and so we were ready every day. Friends, the battle's been won. The end of Satan is is near. He has been defeated. The groom is coming back. So with faith given to us, let's be ready for that day and illuminate Christ so that everyone around us may also know him as well. Amen.